All right. Good morning, church. Thank you, Brian. Uh, man, it's a privilege to be here. I have, uh, so I'm the pastor of Rooted Church, and we are a church plant uh, that's planted in partnership uh, with the Missouri Baptist Convention and also NAM, the North American Mission Board. So uh, as a pastor of a Baptist church plan, I want to thank you for your faithfulness, uh, even within our denomination, as your, uh, your investment in the kingdom has helped even a new church plant like us over the years. Uh, what's also been a help to our church plant is the encouragement of men like Brian and Jeremiah. Uh, your pastors have been a great encouragement to me. Um, it, is not, it can be a weird thing to come into a community as a church planter. Uh, not everybody always knows how to respond to that, and at different times, those two men uh, have been a great encouragement to me, and so you have been blessed with good pastors, and uh, thank you for letting me stand behind the pulpit that they frequent this morning. I, uh, I'm, I consider myself from Joplin. I spent most of my childhood here in this community. In 2011, I did uh, tornado relief full-time um, in Joplin, and uh, I'll never forget one morning I was at, we all, we had a community meeting just a couple days after the tornado at College Heights, and FEMA was there to give us some advice and some guidance as to what we were going to see in the days ahead. And they shared all kinds of statistics about things that they had seen in other natural disasters that we needed to be prepared for as a community. And I do not remember most of them, but I remember one. One of the statistics they shared with us that day was that 10 years from now, based on what they had seen with Katrina and other natural disasters, one in five of our churches would no longer be here because of the financial, emotional, spiritual cost of what it would take to rebuild the city. I remember clearly leaning over to the person sitting by me and thinking that statistic was absurd. That can't be the case. That has to be exaggerated. And then in 2014, uh, we, I left Joplin. We went to begin the work of what would become Planting Rooted Church in Fayetteville, and God was blessing that. And in the meantime, while we were there, we saw that that statistic was beginning to play out in Joplin after all. And now as the director of Crosslines, a, the, a ministry that was founded by the local church 35 years ago, I can confirm that statistic is more true than we thought it was. And as that was becoming clear and God was blessing what we were doing in northwest Arkansas, he led and prompted us to come to Joplin, come back home in 2017 um, to, to step in as a result to that reality and to take part in the work of planting a church here in this city. And so that's kind of why we've, we've got to where we are. Our logo is a tree uh, our because our desire is that fruit might fall off and new trees might be planted uh, to the glory of God throughout this region. And so I just uh, want to thank you. Uh, that kind of reality, the church planting is not possible without the faithfulness and the legacy um, of uh, churches that have been doing it for 140 years. So thank you again so much. This morning, I want to speak to you from 2 John. Um, 2 John is a, uh, a book in the Bible that, uh, because it's so short, uh, just merely the whole book is about half a page, it can be easy to turn past. 2 John is unique in that it is, 1 John is a little bit longer, though not very long, but 2 John doesn't seem to contain any new information from 1 John. In many ways, it's kind of taken the message of 1 John and condensed it, but it's condensed it in the format of a pastoral letter. And so it's kind of summarizing what happens in 1 John, but we see the love pour out of it as John comes from a place of love in the writing of this letter. Adam Clark, in his commentary on 2 John, wrote, 
The epistle is more remarkable for the spirit of Christian love which it breathes than for anything else. It contains scarcely anything that is not found in the preceding. And out of the 13 verses, there are at least eight which are found either in so many words or in sentiment precisely the same as those of the first epistle. And so I want to start by reading verses 1 and 2 in this letter that John wrote to a church he cared for. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. John is writing this letter as an older man now. It's believed that he's likely 90 years old and probably living around Ephesus. He's the last living apostle. He's been through a lot. He's the only apostle who would die of natural causes. And this book is most likely the second to last book written in the New Testament and second to last shortest only behind 3 John. He writes, the elder to the elect lady and her children. Now, this phrase, the elect lady, is somewhat, there's some differing views on this. Some people believe that John is legitimate, he's, he's writing to a specific lady, somebody who was a friend of his, a lady he cares a great deal for and had had a friendship with, and he wants to, to speak to her and, and, and address uh, just the re her reality of her faithfulness. That may well be the case, but I have a slightly biased view on that term because I spent all of last year preaching through the book of Revelation and got to kind of see how John uses language throughout Revelation, and in Revelation we see that there is this lady that stands before the dragon, and that lady represents God's church and his bride. And so this is probably maybe, maybe a decade or two removed from the revelation that John wrote of. And so I tend to believe, as, as do many commentators, that when he's talking about the elect lady, he's actually talking about the church, that he's using this symbolic language to this local church, and the children, meaning those who are a part of that church, Either way, it doesn't change the message of the book, but that's what I believe that John's talking about, the elder to the elect lady. No matter who he's, how he's writing it, we see that John loves the church. He truly loves the church, and he wants to emphasize this from the outset of the letter. And this is important because as an old man, having seen the glory of Jesus revealed in a way that no other human has ever seen and lived, not in the same way that John did throughout Revelation, what is his primary passion? What message is of most importance to him at the very end of his life? And Second John tells us that that message is one of love and truth. These two words dominate this letter and flow from every word that comes. John shares a love for the church and for all believers. And what is the basis for this love? Truth. That being the truth of the gospel. The truth that God so loved the world, he gave his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for those who are his. But everlasting joy in Christ Jesus. John loves these people on the basis of the truth of that gospel to which he holds. And that's a gospel that unites us above all else. The bond we share in Christ is a bond that the world should not be able to break because it is a bond that has overcome the world. Because the bond is rooted in the very promise of God. Thus blessing becomes a, not merely a possibility, but the expectation for those who walk in it. And verse 3 signifies as such. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth in love. 
Notice that verse 3 is not so much a prayer as is usually found with this sort of language, but it is a prediction. It is an assurance. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us because of Jesus. These three words summarize the wonderful blessing that has come from God upon his church. Grace. We have received unmerited favor, which God bestows on the undeserving. All of us fall short of the glory of God. We are prone to stubbornness, as Brian acknowledged in his prayer. All of us, no matter how we might do in this world, we fall short of the expectation of perfect holiness that our Lord reflects. It's like if you and I meet up on the coast of California, and we decide we're going to have a swim race to Hawaii, you might be a really good, strong swimmer. Maybe you make it 10 miles out there. I mean, that would be pretty impressive to me. Maybe I make it a mile before I have to tap out. The reality is we are both dead and in equal need of rescue. We are both in an eternity from the destination, as so is the truth for all who seek to attain righteousness through their own works. We have received grace, unmerited favor, that wherever we reside in our, the ocean of sin and death to which we, into which we were born, God has reached down his strong arm, which is Jesus Christ, and has rescued us from that ocean and, giving, and given us mercy, compassion, He's shown compassion toward the guilty and the helpless. That those of us who are not worthy of such have received not only his unmerited favor, but also regular mercy. And this mercy is bestowed not only on those who are his, but even those who reject God at this point in their life experience the sweetness of the rain, the warmth of the sunshine, and the delight of a new baby. But the mercy that he has shown us is a different kind of mercy. It is his mercy of salvation, and it results in that third word, which is peace, contentment, the result of receiving God's precious grace. John is speaking of a Christ who is compassionate with those who are his. Jesus is aware of our struggles, yet he is drawn to us in the midst of them. And these three words make that clear. He offers a light yoke, as Pastor Brian spoke of. He offers us peace. Over and over and over again throughout Scripture, Christ is drawn toward the broken, the lowly, the liar, the cheater, the drunk, the prostitute. He's always been this way. And thus his call of salvation is not so much, that it doesn't so much make much of us whom he chooses, but it makes much of the one whom has called the broken to himself. All throughout Scripture, Noah is the man that was called to build the ark, to provide a vessel to save God's people. And yet he is the same man who's passed out drunk, naked in his tent, not much farther down the road. David, he's a man after God's own heart. And he sexually manipulates a woman and, and could be argued he basically murders her husband. Abraham believed the promises of God, yet he hands over his wife twice. Adam was given the responsibility to steward the garden. And he hid like a coward as his wife faced the serpent. Jacob was the father of 12 tribes, but he lied to steal a birthright. Why is God gracious to men and women like this? Why is he gracious to us? Because, as John is alluding to to the church, it is his very heart. It is who he is. Christ's natural reaction towards his beloved is mercy and love. We don't know how to comprehend this idea. 
we don't know what to do with it because all of us have limits to our grace. Grace is often like currency. It comes in response to you doing something the right way. As a parent, I, re- I struggle with this constantly, not, this, not having this transactional grace, but it's, it's how my heart most naturally is. However, Christ has no such limits to his grace. He is a fountain of grace and mercy for those who belong to him and who rest upon the rock. Romans 5.20 tells us that where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That Christ's reaction is that to the deeper the brokenness, the more robust the mercy, grace, and peace that he offers. John describes these blessings of grace and mercy and peace. And what is the package that he acknowledges that all of these blessings are found in? The terms in truth and in love. Grace Mercy and peace are realized only when truth is honored and upheld. They are experienced only when the commandment to love is kept. John gets a little more specific about this in verses 4 through 6. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Jonathan Edwards once famously said, The informing of the understanding is all vain, any farther than it affects the heart, or which is the same thing, has influence on the affections? This is John's message. Too many men and women have all kinds of head knowledge. They can quote a hundred podcasters. They've read all of the books. But if love is not what radiates most naturally from them, then their heart doesn't reflect the truth that their mind claims to know. Unless truth reaches the heart of a man, it's useless. And even worse, without love, a truth that does not result in love is destructive, especially in the midst of the local church. And that's part of John, especially 3 John, we'll see that's part of his whole reason for writing it is to address this truth. Matthew 7, 22, maybe one of the, maybe the most terrifying verse in the Bible to me makes this clear. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do, not, and do many works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We see that, that truth alone, knowledge, empty head knowledge, is, does nothing if by the power of the gospel it has not saved us, rescued us, if the Holy Spirit does not dwell in us and is not transforming us into the image of Christ. There are those who have knowledge of the Lord, They have a thorough understanding of religion, but they do not know love. And Jesus says in Matthew 7 that they're not his. John rejoices, however, that amongst these, many are walking in the truth, just as they were commanded by the Father. He acknowledges that amongst the children. And again, John makes the point in verse 6 that we demonstrate love not only by loving one another, but by walking according to his commands. Love and truth. 
are thus like two railroad tracks of the Christian life. On this track, the gospel flows forward to an unbelieving world. But if you remove either track, you get something else. Okay, that, that knowledge without love, that the, the, the truth of, um, the truth of the, if, if the truth of God's word is not changing me, if I only have knowledge to beat people over the head with, well, then I'm leading them towards legalism. Then I'm, I begin to teach them that the gospel is something that they do, something they earn, that if they do good enough, God will essentially be in their debt. If I have kept the law, if I have earned my own righteousness, then I'm, I'm not a sinner in need of grace. I'm a taxpayer that has rights. God owes me something because I accomplished it. But the other side of that is, if I'm merely just loving and every, everything's good and I don't need any good, I don't need truth, I don't hold truth in high regard, well, then I'm leading people towards another false gospel, which is legalism, the idea that God isn't holy, that God isn't just. And that's, that's a lie as well because he is. And in Christ, we see the perfect combination of these two realities. He is truth and he is love manifest. And so we must constantly Make sure both of these, these rails are in our own lives and reflecting the way in which we live out the gospel. And it's for this reason that he goes on to warn about these false messages that we must be aware of. In verses 7 through 11, he gives the church a warning to beware of false teachers. It says this, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose that what we have worked for, but you may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and who does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Love is a powerful force. Even the lost admire the power of love. Our culture is ate up with the power of love. Songs, movies, culture, everything's about the power of love. Even the lost person recognizes the beauty of love. The way the lost person holds that new baby the same and recognizes that there is something divine about love that it reflects. The problem is that love alone will not do. True love, the love of God, is always tested, affirmed, accompanied by truth. Because our hearts are prone to wander. Our hearts are prone to take even love and mold it to whatever our own will is. That we want love to be whatever makes us feel good. And thus, because we are prone to such things, we have been given God's word that we might test what is truly loving. Because true love will always be affirmed by the word of God, by truth itself. We cannot separate truth, and love, and this is the never-ending struggle of the world which believes otherwise. They want love or they want truth, but they don't want the gospel. We cannot separate truth and love. True love, godly love, is the love that's birthed out of the truth of God's word. John is unashamed of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. He tells the church to beware of two kind of teachers. He gives two specifics. He tells them to beware of the one who denies the incarnation. False teaching almost always starts with 
and is revealed by one's view of Jesus. Press into what they believe about Jesus and they will show you their cards. A false teacher, whether a Mormon or a Muslim, will inevitably reveal that they deny and reject the perfect work of atonement through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. If you, you many false teachers, many false, are, are, they're, they're very well trained in what it means to make the, the unknowledgeable Christian think we're talking about the same thing. Like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, we're, we're good with Jesus. But if you press into what they believe about Jesus and who he is and what God has done, how God is manifest in Christ, they will show their cards. And John warns the church. There's false teaching going around that's denying the fullness of the incarnation. And John warns the church have nothing to do with such things. John's response is that this one is the deceiver and the antichrist. The second is the one who does not teach the word of God. Too many teachers are prone to want to offer swim lessons to men who are drowning. And that just doesn't do any good. What they need is not lessons. What they need is not works to attain. What they need is a savior. What the person and the, the, on that trip to Hawaii, what I need is not a helicopter to fly over me in the ocean and shout swim lessons at me. What I need is for you to throw the net down, dive into the water, and rescue me from that in which I am drowning. And that is the gospel. God's strong arm reaching down into that ocean and plucking us from sin and death. The gospel is not Jesus plus anything, but Jesus and Jesus alone. My works, my good works are not intended to earn my salvation. I'm not trying to please daddy that he might love me. No, my good works are birthed out of the fact that he does love me. That my works are motivated by the fact that even when I was in sin, when I was in that ocean, not because of anything I have to offer, he rescued me. And thus my life is changed and I'm motivated to live differently. And this is not something new. We don't have anything new or better to offer than the word of God and the truth of the gospel. And John's warning the church that the one who needs to adjust or change the word of God to meet their taste is quickly identified by John as one who is lost. And this is not just true of liberalism. Like we can do this on the other side too. Legalism and license are both ways in which one seeks to bend the word of God. One, to make themselves feel like they've accomplished something because they're just so offended at the idea that it's grace and grace alone, that it's about Jesus and not them. But the other is prone to do the same, to reject. The truth of the gospel is a growing awareness of how good and gracious my God is, and at the same time, how needy and desperate I am. And it's both. Because if I'm not, if I'm not growing in both of those things, I'm prone to either legalism, believing I've attained something by my own works, or license. Like, if I can't if I can't do that, then why do I even try? Why not just live, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? But the truth of the gospel is that I have been made righteous on the basis of Christ, and thus I live as a reflection of him as one who has been made an heir. False teachers always want to do wicked math with the gospel. They take part in addition. They add an extra biblical source of authority by prophet, pen, or professor. They take part in subtraction. They subtract from the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They deny his deity and find inadequate his work of redemption on one grounds or another. They certainly take part in division. They divide our allegiance from God through Christ alone. 
They make worldly issues a litmus test for what it means to be gospel family, not the blood of Christ. They take part in multiplication. They multiply the requirements for salvation. An advocate for uh, false teaching always involves some form of works-based salvation. This morning, we'll share with you a personal disclaimer. While we need to be aware of the one who denies the truth, and I trust knowing your leadership that that's preached boldly and regularly, I want to appeal to you as a local pastor that we also need to be aware of the one who has what seems to be truth but denies love. Hear me out on this. I am increasingly concerned by those within the world of Christendom who seemed to be so motivated, not primarily to defend the gospel, but to cause fear in Christians. They convince brothers and sisters that we're not family, but enemies on the grounds of worldly issues. Social media seems to be filled with men and women who want book deals and are dependent on stoking fear and anxiety in the body of Christ in order to get them. I'm not telling you that we should not be fearful for a brother or sister who is in error. We certainly should. And in in love should we go to them and speak truth where it is needed. But a brother is a brother on the basis of the blood of Christ. We go to him. We seek to learn and grow together as those united by the gospel with our Bibles open. Jared Wilson, a staff member at Midwestern Theological Seminary, recently wrote this. The gospel of Jesus doesn't just make strangers into friends. It makes enemies into brothers and sisters. Gathering with people who are just like us makes natural sense. But committing to the good and glory of people not like us in the name of Jesus, that makes heavenly sense. Churches like this give us a foretaste of the new world that is to come. How is it possible to be a foretaste of the new world to come when there are so many things right now that we struggle with, that we see differently within the body of Christ that seek to divide us. Maybe in my lifetime, which I recognize, many of you, (laughs) that, that statement might even be offensive. In my lifetime, though, I've never seen the body of Christ so divided. How does the church remain unified amongst such a diverse family on issues that we're struggling to understand fully ourselves? I want to close this morning by suggesting that perhaps John gives us a hint in his closing remarks. In verses 12 and 13, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy might be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. That's an easy couple of verses to look past and just to see that as the conclusion to a letter. But I want to hold to a minute that I think there's something there. I think there's something worth looking at. I would rather not use paper and ink. I instead desire to come to you face to face that our joy may be complete. How might our joy be complete if we held to this same value? As a pastor, I mean, I'll say what maybe it's hard if I had to stand up here every Sunday to say, the last few years have been hard. (laughs) It's just been a hard time to be a pastor in this world. And I'll tell you what my least favorite thing has become to hear over the last three years. If I had a dollar for every time somebody said to me, did you see what such and such posted on Facebook? Did you see it? Did you see it? You know, and like, and, and I became aware probably like a year ago 
that in my church, there was all of these little resentments amongst people who had never, who had no idea. They had no idea they were harboring these feelings towards other people based on something they'd seen or assumed because nobody goes to each one another face to face. It's like social media, what we post, what we put out there, it's our new version of, of, you know, of, of paper and ink. Who has paper and ink anymore, right? Our sovereign God has brought you here to be in fellowship with these brothers and sisters as part of his divine purpose here and now, both for their good and for your own. Don't let bloggers, authors, full-time philosophers tell you how divided you are. I want to just encourage you as a brother this morning, gather around a table with one and find out if it's really true. Perhaps, and maybe this isn't true, but perhaps there's even somebody in this room who maybe you have a little bit of that towards. Maybe your joy would be complete to actually sit down together with them and discover whether or not you actually are as divided as you might think you are. I would challenge you that I believe you'll be surprised at what you find because I believe that the reason he's saying this is because when we come together face to face, things tend to turn out quite differently and we discover uh, the truth that unites us is far stronger than the squabbles that divide us. Truth and love are gifts from our Lord. Might we rest in the ultimate truth revealed in Jesus Christ and may we never waver on the truth of the gospel which unites us together. Yet in matters of difference amongst family, might we show love to one another as we seek to grow together. As we're, we're ending, I usually say closing tw two times. I, but th third time you get to start saying something, but this is only, I've only said it two times. I want to, I want to get, there's an example of this in scripture that I'd leave you with this morning. In 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4, Romans 14 is also a good example of this. It says this. I want to walk you through 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 4. It says in verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols. This was a complicated issue in the church in this day. It was dividing the church because both sides within the church had valid points on this complex issue. There were some who were saying, if food was offered to idols, we shouldn't eat it. I mean, it was, it was sinful in nature. We shouldn't have anything to do with it. And there were other people, probably like me, who were like, yeah, but that's a good-looking ribeye. I mean, it still tastes good. Like, why, why, why waste it? Why throw it away? And so there's these two points coming up. That's a very watered-down version of a complicated issue. That's my Cliff Notes version. It's, Paul says this to the church in Corinth. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Amongst Christians, we all have knowledge from Scripture. And we're often we're coming from the same place and motivation. At least that we hope that's the case. We hope church membership is affirming that. Even if we arrive at different conclusions, we're often coming with the same knowledge and seeking the same end. But what are we trying to do with our knowledge? He says, we know that all of us possess knowledge. The knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge is not the primary marker of a Christian. Paul is telling the church, love is. Theological aptitude is important, but it is not our primary pursuit. A changed heart, a Christ-like love, these are higher pursuits. And that's why even simple fishermen were called to be the primary disciples of Jesus. And he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. 
Paul's word to the Christian is if they think they are absolutely right with no need to learn on an issue dividing the children of God, they might be the problem. As a Christian, as a pastor, I have a lot of opinions on things that are opinions that I'm trying to figure out. And I have to clearly distinguish those from the gospel because the gospel is no opinion. The gospel has made me an heir to the kingdom of God. It's made me family. My opinions, I'm I'm trying to figure those out. I, I could use your help with some of those. But the gospel, and the gospel certainly informs those. It's the lens through which I see. But I'll spend the rest of my life trying to work out the complications of this world but I get to do that with the assurance of the gospel. And so I need not be divided with you because we've been made part of the same family. And I don't know about you, but I have kind of a messed up family, so I know that that's hard. Sometimes, like, being family isn't always easy, but we're family. And if that's true for blood, well, certainly grace is thicker than blood. I believe that it is. We all have a lot to learn, and we need one another. Some of us need better knowledge. Some of us need a bigger heart, but we all need truth and love. I'd like to pray to that end uh, for you and with you this morning.